Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost and your podcast host. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Sam Raimi's comedy horror Drag Me to Hell, a film as bleak, gory and gross as it is poignant, funny and, at times, quite heartfelt. Released in 2009, it marked Raimi's return to his horror origins after some time working on. Released in 2009, it marked Raimi's return to his horror origins after some time away from the genre, working on the first live-action Spider-Man franchise. Drag Me to Hell follows young loan officer Christine, as played by Alison Lohman, who, in order to prove to her boss that she can make the hard decisions, chooses not to extend an elderly woman's mortgage. In retaliation, the woman, who turns out to be a witch by the name of Mrs. Ganesh, places a curse on Christine that, after three days of escalating torture, will plunge her into the depths of hell to burn for eternity. The film follows Christine's frantic attempts to rid herself of the curse and her constant, increasingly violent persecution by otherworldly creatures. I'm joined in this episode by Mary Wilde, the creator of the Projections Lecture Series, Applying Psychoanalysis to Film Interpretation, and the co-host of the Projections Podcast with Sarah Cleaver. Mary and I will discuss different readings of Drag Me to Hell, so if you haven't seen the film, be worried that spoilers will happen pretty much from the start. If you're not too fussed about those, do enjoy. It does get quite weird. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for <laughs> us you. to dig into this film. Me too. So kind of to kick off at first, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Drag Me to Hell? Yeah, it's funny, actually, because this film was released in 20, sorry, 2009. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually watch it when it was first released. Uh, I only happened to watch it only last year when it, I saw it pop up on Netflix. I think it was just like a very limited uh, sort of run on Netflix. And I discovered it that way. So I didn't have any initial like impressions of it when it first released at all. And mm-hmm. I really liked it. <laughs> How do you think it's aged? I think actually it's it's very I, I I quite like the fact that it's 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 sort of very high octane in the in the violence that it serves. There's it's almost slapstick. I don't even know how else to describe it. Some of it just feels so OTT. Yeah. There's a lot of like WTF moments, like what the <laughs> fuck have I just seen? Like it's very Sam Raimi. <laughs> it's very Sam Raimi. Yeah. There's a lot of people vomiting in each other's mouths. A lot of projectile vomiting. A lot. A lot of projectile bleeding. Yeah. Which, yeah, a lot of that. (laughs) So yeah, I think it is pretty much a horror comedy. Exactly. Although I remember going to the cinema in 2009, probably 2010. Mm -hmm. So still being in Spain at that time. And everything came about a year later. Um, And going to the cinema and kind of being quite scared, like genuinely scared, but also laughing, which is that weird balance that... Very few people manage just to strike and Sam Raimi, I think, is one of them because he can create these moments of terror, but then 
insert some projectile vomiting and make it all fun again. That's what's really amazing about this and unique. You're absolutely right. Because for me, usually, I don't really take very well to jump scares. They usually either annoy me or I just find them like repetitive and, and redundant. But actually, I think in this film, it's very effective. Uh, just because, the, first of all, the cinematography is so beautiful. So it's mm -hmm. very watchable. And so you're suddenly uh, drawn into this trance. Like I'm just... Uh, imagining the scene where she's in the car and there's this like shawl or veil floating in the air and then we just suddenly see her in the backseat of the car like Mrs. Ganesh in the backseat of the car so it kind of draws you in and then it kind of punches you in the gut I like that <laughs> <laughs> that was a great moment that's a great sound bite <laughs> how would you describe the the film for someone who hasn't seen it yet mm, that's a good question I think um, I think it's actually pretty accessible for people who don't usually watch horror, just because it's dealing in a subject that's pretty relatable. You know, people uh, having ambitions to get promoted in their job, um, and those kind of feelings of not fitting in and wanting to belong. So it's kind of pretty universal themes. But the, the whole bit with Mrs. Ganesh and who, is she really a witch and is she an occultist and what's going on, what's at the center of this drama, um, it, it's good enough and sort of cinematic enough that it would engage probably a lot of mainstream audiences. I would say it's one of those films that for non-horror fans I would recommend because it is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And because the series is entirely focused on kind of witches on screen, both in film and television, kind of brings me neatly to the question of do you think Mrs. Ganesh who's the main antagonist of mm. the of the film is she a witch in your opinion? Mm. I had a th thought about that as I was watching the film actually because it's not that straightforward. I think in the classic sense yes she is because she is an occultist and is capable of manipulating the supernatural powers to benefit herself or to manipulate other people and those are some of those tropes that we've heard and seen about witches I just also noticed that the film like seems to exploit some derogatory representations of the of the term witch relating particularly to older assertive women mm -hmm. um, so like the old tropes of the battle axe and the old hag mm -hmm. you know this the kind crone of, the crone exactly and and also there was just also this thing about women being pitted against each other like you know, um, and she, she cast this curse or hex on her. So there are those kind of gendered preconceptions, I think, about an embittered older woman who is sort of, I, I don't know whether it's consciously played out or if it's done in a critical way. It's hard to pinpoint, but I do think she's a witch. Yeah. Good. Okay, good. Because I was, I was a bit always on the fence about this film because I always read her as a witch because of how she's presented. Mm. When I was rewatching it, there's so much talk about demons and yeah. Bellamia and kind of that is the actual supernatural entity that's chasing down Christine, the protagonist. Yeah. But Mrs. Ganesh, the way that she's presented as well, the first time we see her, we just see her hand oh God. tapping on the table. And her nails. Yeah. They're like decaying. Yeah, there's this huge close-up of her hand, which are just these crusty old oh, horrible yeah. nails. And she's very much kind of characterized mm. as a, a witch with warts. And a, you can almost imagine her having a bubbling cauldron somewhere. Yeah. And how do you think she fits in? into kind of our idea of an on-screen witch. Yeah, I think that those characteristics are definitely played up um, and we're kind of invited into that 
uh, I guess the folklore of how witches have been presented before, it's some, she could almost be out of like the Wizard of Oz. Like she kind of looks, she has those characteristics of uh, wanting to do harm and being malignant and kind of exploiting her access to the supernatural world to seek revenge. And But what's also interesting is that I was prompted to think about the catalyst, you know, the, the central conflict of the film, and that the crux of the film really is this tension between a young professional woman um, who has, you know, who's who appears to have the temerity to shame an older person um, and strip them of their basic dignity, which is the right to a, to a place to live, because Mrs. Ganesh is asking for an extension on her mortgage, on her yeah. bank loan, and she then you know she comes to the bank asking for an extension on her mortgage and she's effectively told her she cannot have more time and that to me is interesting because it's as if um it could almost be an allegory about uh, an elderly subject who's begging for a prolonged life like she's reaching the end of her life and she's begging for more time um and time is here represented in in in, in, in extension and she desperately wants more time to be alive, um, and her home is, you know, secures that for her. And so Christine, who sometimes is referred to throughout the film as like just a farm girl, yeah. she has this kind of connection as being like down to earth, or connected somehow to nature and to the earth. Like she makes that harvest cake, mm -hmm. and it's like when she refuses to bend the laws of nature. It's that old kind of like mythological battle between human beings who are at the end of their life and they they begrudge nature for not allowing them more time. And this takes on, I think the witch trope is just like a very convenient uh, metaphor to represent that. It's so fascinating because one of the kind of recurring things that I keep seeing and rewatching and rethinking uh, my own opinions about a lot of these films, a lot of them are older women who... And as witches, a lot of, not their power, but their goal is to not just extend their life, but extend their ability to enjoy life, wow. uh, whether that is through their beauty or youth or just, you know, being able to walk around and uh, live deliciously, to quote <laughs> on a previous <laughs> previous film we discussed. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's from The Witch, the Robert Eggers film, and it just stuck in my mind today. I'd first to talk a little bit more about that incident where... Christine and Mrs. Ganesh meet because it's such a, a power struggle in a way. Mrs. Ganesh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Ganesh, but another extension on the loan is out of the question. What? I would like to help, but it is in the bank. No, please. This is my home. Where will I live? You list your granddaughter as a reference. Maybe you could stay with her. I would not burden her. And there are several fine assisted living facilities. For A nursing you. home? No, I would never live in one of those places. I'm really sorry. I am proud woman, Miss Bratton, and never have I begged for anything. But now, I beg for you. 
I have I sent before you. I send you Ganesh beg on my mother's grave. I beg you. Please let go. Let go. Security. Stop. And Christine, who is presented from the very beginning as someone who is quite insecure, but ambitious, but definitely being sort of taken advantage of and puppeteered around by her boss, her slimy co-worker, yeah. feels a bit inadequate because she's referred to as the girl from the farm by her boyfriend's parents who were, you know, were told later on and it's implied that they're very well off. Yeah, and they don't consider her to be of a stand of an equal social standing to their son. Mm. So there's a lot of that insecurity, and that's when she meets Mrs. Ganesh, and it's that that kind of power struggle that you were talking about of someone who's young and and beautiful, but still not quite in their power yet. Wow, yeah, being confronted by someone who is presented as weak, but is actually secretly extremely powerful, powerful. at that moment where. Mrs. Ganesh steps down on her knees and she begs. It's yeah. so really kind of creepy. I found it a lot creepier rewatching yeah. it for this. Than it's kind of devastating. It really is. Because, yeah. you, you know, kind of witches are such icons of power that yeah. to see one reduced to begging for something is... It's shattering. Yeah, for something is shallow in a way. Yeah. But so hugely important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's so beautifully put. Um, the kind of paradoxes in both of them that are reflected in each other. Um, and in a way, I think that um, Christine being also just her name, like suggesting, it sounds like, you know, Christ or Christianity. To me, that makes sense. There's this kind of timeless uh, battle between um, the pagans and, and Christians that seems to also play on a certain layer in the film in terms of faith and in terms of uh, what's acceptable in terms of beliefs but also the fact that yeah absolutely her social standing leaves a lot to, to be desired in her perception of how um, her fam you know her boyfriend's family functioned or uh, she overhears that conversation that makes her feel uncomfortable makes her feel doubtful about whether she'd be accepted in their family so in that sense she's kind of abject you know mm -hmm. she's sort of in the margins and she desperately longs just to fit in. That can work on multiple levels too, because we hear that in the past she had a she was overweight or she felt uh, insecure about being heavier. So she, f you know, she physically couldn't fit in, you mm -hmm. know. And so this plays plays on her mind as well. Now as an adult, she still feels abject, and the abjection plays itself in the body horror. So this to me makes me think of Julia Kristeva's book *Powers of Horror*, where she goes, she talks at length about abjection being uh, in relation to to the disgusting bits relating to vomiting, nosebleeds, all the body fluids, um, those bits of our body that might be decaying or repulsive when we're confronted with them, you know, bits of filth and, and everything that's taboo, basically. And in a way, she's kind of taboo because she doesn't quite fit in. And also, Kristeva talks about the abject in the sense of that space between um, 
the horror element being located in a space between being an, a subject and an object, being a human being with autonomy, uh, but transgressing those boundaries and moving towards being dead, being an object, but not quite reaching that space yet. You're kind of undead. Mm. And that's the power of horror. And that's quite interesting because it's literally where Christine finds herself once she is cursed by Mrs. Ganesh. She's sort of, her eyes are opened up to the horrors of the supernatural and she's yeah. being chased down by this creature conjured by Mrs. Ganesh called the Lamia. The Lamia. So all, a lot of even the violent acts that happen to her or the visions she has, which are all very physical, feel otherworldly. So it's like that in between, between her being alive and her own person. Yeah. And then becoming, you know, being quite literally dragged to hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God. You know, we talked about it a little bit before mm. about being kind of funny and good respites for um, people who might, you know, get really scared by mm. more kind of hardcore uh, horror films. That this has an element of humor to it. Yeah. But it is extremely gross. Oh, yeah. Essentially, there is a lot of fluids. It's a real gross out. Yeah. So kind of what did you make of, um, what's your reading of those body horror elements that are so present in the film? The one thing that really stands out in my mind is the bit where Mrs. Ganesh uh, rams her entire arm inside Christine's mouth. Yes, I completely forgotten about that bit until I rewatched it. <laughs> yeah, it really takes you by surprise. Yeah. Because it's so, it, it's almost to the point of being kind of camp horror, but at the same time, it kind of makes you wretch a bit, like it's really gross. And I couldn't think of, uh, I couldn't help but think of it as almost like a monstrous blowjob. <laughs> Just in the sense that like Mrs. Ganesh is this really powerful witch. <laughs> That's Where, not um, at all anything that anybody searches for in Pornhub ever. <laughs> Very. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So that's like, uh, you know, Pornhub if uh, Barbara Creed was the curator, you know, monster. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you know, the monstrous feminine. On yeah. <laughs> that is a, that is a niche. I did not Very know niche. I needed to know about in my life. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I think there'd be a lot of takers. That's amazing. <laughs> Pornhub is curated by Barbara Creed. <laughs> But yeah, like it's just because she's she's so powerful, you know, she is so incredibly powerful and she is kind of in possession of um, something super supernatural that is so dominating in psychoanalysis. Anytime like there's talk about power structure and, and centers of power that hoard all the power, we're talking about the phallus. So it has nothing to do, of course, with the male organ. It's just here the witch is very much in possession of the supernatural phallus that she imposes on Christine to kind of violate her as an act of revenge. And so, again, it kind of, you know, breaks down this, uh, I guess, tension and conflict between maybe paganism and Christianity, uh, particularly because the Alison Lohman character, you know, we, we see that she is kind of a good person. She harbors a lot of guilt mm -hmm. about what, ha you know, that incident at the bank. She doesn't just kind of like dismiss it. No, she doesn't let it go. No. And it, she doesn't feel at ease with herself until in the last scene she very openly and verbally takes responsibility says yeah. that i could have let her have the mortgage yeah but i chose not to exactly. for my own reasons for my own selfish reasons yeah 
Yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking because yeah. we see that her colleague that she works with is a real brown noser. Stu. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I trust the Stu. No. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to any Stu's. And it's just, you know, we can see that she's clearly capable of doing the job. She produces excellent reports. You know, she's intelligent. She's capable. And she she feels she puts she's she's put by her manager in this kind of awkward situation where she has to make tough decisions and demonstrate aggressive characteristics, which she really struggles with. Yeah. She's always sort of um, minimized as well by both yeah. her co-worker and her manager, That's you know, so where they sort of, oh, God. It's the scene really uh, made me angry. It's a, it's not even a horror scene, but it's the part where uh, she is talking to her manager and she's sort of, you know, doing the things that she knows she thinks she needs to do to get the promotion. And he sends her off to get him lunch. And it's obviously humiliating, but she agrees because he's her manager. Yeah. And Stu comes along and gives her an order and then says she didn't get it right in front of her manager even mm. though that's not true yeah there's this little look they exchange when she leaves the room as if oh you know there she goes gonna yeah. go crying in the toilet now yeah it's totally gaslighting yeah and and there's several instances in the film of m mansplainers like even her boyfriend who is a, i think a psychology professor yeah and like when she's describing her experiences that you know when christine is undergoing these like very bizarre events and she gets the feeling that there's an entity following her and disturbing her peace at home when she tells her boyfriend he just kind of tells her oh no you've just been through a trauma you know and you're just reliving your trauma and he, he completely minim again minimizes her experience and invalidates her there seems to be this kind of thing as well where she is um not taken seriously by a lot of the men in the story mm. um, he does though kind of acquiesce to her he does paranoias, and he kind of goes along with her distrusts everything mm. all the way um, but he does try to support her. I mean, what what do you Eventually. make of him as a character in general? Do you think he sort of falls in line with her manager and Stu? Not quite. No, he's at first he seems not um, fully in support of what she is um, actually bringing forward as her true experience. And I think he's quite logical. He's trying to find like let's say scientific explanations for what's happening, and he's trying to find the logic in this narrative which seems initially seems really like psychotic you know mm -hmm. so at first i felt like um i wasn't sure about him and i kind of mistrusted him but i, I think you're right i think eventually al along along the narrative he does recognize that she's really suffering and when she isn't able to um fundraise for the spiritualist who's meant to be helping her um she she goes and sells all her possessions mm -hmm. and it only comes up to about thirty eight hundred dollars that was also heartbreaking as well, mm. you know, um, just to have like a number like that uh, quoted to you as your worth. And, yeah. and it does. And she's falling short. And it's really embarrassing. It kind of just mirrors what happened in the initial incident where yeah. Mrs. Ganesh, of course, she was falling short, too, in her payments. So when he he seems to um, rely on his affluence or his monetary background to come in and he, he does uh, pay the spiritualist. So that is good, yeah. And do you think the fact that Christine works in a bank, the fact that she's a loan officer, yeah. the fact that she, the inciting incident is a refusal to extend a uh, mortgage payment and, you know, 
let's remember that this film came out in the middle of a giant recession that was partially, you know, prompted by a huge mortgage crisis. So it seems like very deliberate choices to set the characters in that scenario and to, like you say, give a very specific monetary value to their lives and their experiences what do you think the meaning behind that is yeah I totally agree I think those choices were deliberate and I think it's actually quite smart to tell a story of the anguish and suffering that was caused by the subprime mortgage crisis and using the horror like you know horror genre as a language to express that sorrow and grief I think what's really interesting is constant uh, return of a certain term of turn of phrase or word such as possession or repossession. Initially, we see Mrs. Ganesh and her fear that her house will be repossessed. Then, when her loan uh, extension is denied, um, Christine is obviously met with all these um, difficulties. And Mrs. Ganesh attempts to possess Christine um, and her soul via the evil Lamia spirit. Then Christine tries to raise those funds uh, for the spiritualist by selling her possession. So the same word keeps coming back again and again. uh, There's this term in banking called foreclosure, uh, which is the action of taking possession of a mortgage property when the person's not able to keep up with their payments. Um, Weirdly enough, the exact term appears in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Uh, Jacques Lacan, who was a Freudian, um, he introduced this term to identify the specific cause for psychosis. He said that it regards the fact that the subject no longer sees as part of their universal, sh- um, uh, universally shared reality. So he says basically that a psych- in a psychotic person, a certain lawful dimension is foreclosed, it's cast out of their awareness. So they no longer accept um, the reality that we all exist in. And they start to, like that lawful element is foreclosed, it leaves them. And that creates a hole in their discourse that cannot be filled, just like the hole that opens up and swallows her, drags her to hell. It causes a psychotic structure in the individual. This um, is apparently what causes delusions and hallucinations, um, which are throughout this film. Um, And these appear because they're trying to communicate that the self itself is crumbling and attempting to hold itself together in whatever way it can. They're basically just trying to like button themselves up, which is interesting because the object is a button. Yes, (laughs) I was about to say. Yeah, And she literally, the thing that will pass on the curse will be gaining or handing over possession of this cursed object right which is a button from her coat and you know this is this is a very spoilerific podcast anyway the kind of the last twist of the film is that actually she never got rid of the curse and it's still with her still with her and it's that heartbreaking last scene where she's come to terms with herself and the fact that she acted out of self-interest and yeah. she appears to be saved. We're following all the narrative tropes of horror films. We can relax. We're good. And then the literal ground beneath her feet opens up and she's dragged by demons into hellfire. It's shocking. I really didn't see that ending coming. When I, I, did, I didn't know the spoilers when I went into mm-hmm. it. And when it came, I couldn't believe it. It was 
it was so heartbreaking because because we saw that she, she finally had the, this opportunity to live out like a positive path for herself and she put all this stuff behind her but it never left her so all all the time that she felt the fabric of her reality being ripped apart in the end uh, she wasn't able to fasten herself up you know she still had this missing button that left open this gap this kind of discursive or narrative gap where Mrs. Ganesh could come back and drag her back. And I think a lot of this has to do also with maybe something about um, also the fact that she did come from a past where she was overweight and this still plays on her mind. The, her, that heaviness could also be a, a, maybe an allusion to something she's carrying with her all the time, baggage she hasn't been able to let go of. And this might be part of her pathology. And maybe this is why she feels so self-conscious about mm. body image because it really doesn't have anything to do with it necessarily with anything vain. It's more what she's carrying with her. As it's more about taking up the space, exactly. both physically and psychologically. Yeah. A lot of the kind of the class issues that came through very, maybe because I've watched it now that I'm older, definitely went way above my head when I watched it, yeah. when it originally came out. But that sense of... Um, of being very conscious of where you are on the social ladder, wow. especially if her partner in this film is very much presented as being from a very uh, upper class family. And the scene, yeah. the dinner scene where she goes to meet his family is so heartbreaking. It is. It does let go midway through when there seems to be a moment of genuine connection between her and his mother. But up to that point, it's like an interrogation room. Yeah. Uh, well, ever since my dad died, um, she doesn't talk much. She just uh, stays on the farm and keeps to herself because... Because? Because her husband died, Mom, and she just wants to be by herself. Why don't... Because my mother's an alcoholic. Oh. I I'm sorry. It's, it's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. I have to say, I find your honesty very refreshing. My father had a drinking problem, and I was always too ashamed to admit it. You've got backbone. Unlike that last girl he brought by, what was her name? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The harvest cake that she brought brings over isn't sophisticated enough. Mm. Um, you know, she she's obviously tried very hard to impress. She looks she looks great. But then she makes this comment about her cat and it's awkward. Yeah. It's only at the moment, as you say, that when she reveals that her, you know, Christine reveals that her mother was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. that her boyfriend's mother, you know, it says, oh, that's really refreshing to hear someone say that. You know, it's really honest. My father had a drinking problem. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's the trauma that binds the women there, you mm -hmm. know, and that's the real genuine thing. It's no pretense and there's no allusions to anything. Yeah. It's something human. Mm -hmm. Um but unfortunately, the, for her, for Christine, the hallucinations are too violent, and she does lash out, and it's and it's it's it must it must have been heartbreaking, um, and it is so. That's the thing about this film is that even though there's so many OTT moments and gross out moments, there's still a lot of human value in it that comes there's through. There's a lot of heart in it, yeah. yeah, which is one of the things I really love about Sam Raimi cinema, anyway. Yeah, um, and one of the most interesting readings again that i think came out a little while after its general release 
was that the whole film is the horror is actually about the lasting trauma of eating disorders yeah. and you know statistically not that they don't affect men but statistically mostly affect women mostly affect young women mm-hmm. what do you make of that reading had you encountered it before or has it kind of impacted your viewing maybe upon rewatch? yeah it did occur to me that there were a lot of references to food and but it seemed like in a patho- pathological way whether it was just like a like a nuanced thing or something very serious like when we see her she's in distress and she's got this gallon of ice cream you know yeah. she's binge eating yeah and it did occur to me there's something there about f- preoccupation with food and eating disorders and i think it is a really good conclusion to say that it's probably she as a person she hasn't been really empowered to believe that she can take up the space that she needs so she, and maybe also because of the influence of our culture and ha- what women are meant to be to look like and standards of beauty i think in her case uh, she's done everything she can to shrink herself down mm. not just uh, in appearance but also in her role you know with in her job mm-hmm. um and and we see that she's trying to take risks she's, she's trying to come out and and take her rightful place mm-hmm. as an empowered person but she, she i don't think this is it's something that she's quite mastered yet so the disordered eating i think is a reflection of that that it's either it's either a compulsion to uh restrict or out of control you know binge episode or a lack of control yeah you know yeah and sorry just bring this on you just thought of you as you were speaking because it's so interesting do you think there's a particular maybe um because it's your expertise do you think there's a particular psychoanalytical reading to the fact that who's tried so hard to shrink herself into other people's expectations of her Mm -hmm. do you think there's a particular reading to mrs ganish being presented as so over the top in every single possible way as in too old to even be going into the bank to ask for a mortgage extension uh essentially literally falling apart like her teeth are fake she takes them out they're all covered in spit you know her nails look basically dead she all looks you know one of her eyes is gone it's kind of replaced with a with a glass eye yeah that's very aggressively kind of there she's so over the top Mm. witchy and kind of a lot of the body horror comes from her just looking like she does yeah do you think there's a distinct kind of element of pitting this woman who is going against every single kind of image norm that is placed upon women being the one that confronts this very young ambitious young woman who is working really hard to fit in yes i do i do in the sense that um the way mrs ganesh looks she almost like when when she appears at the bank there's almost no distinction from that moment until when we see her at her memorial when she's in the casket she looks exactly the same it's as if she was just an animated corpse all along she was already kind of just dead as you precisely um, describe her physical features, they're decaying. And the thing about eating disorders is that it's a pathology of nourishment, mm-hmm. you know, so and food representing 
uh, a functional, uh, hopefully healthy, nutritious way to nourish yourself and bring livelihood, you know, ac actually ingest livelihood into your body. In, in an eating disorder, um, there, it, it's a very ambivalent relationship with that, and it's usually very pathological. Mm -hmm. it, it's either an, an outright refusal to eat and introduce the nourishment into your body mm -hmm. and make yourself healthy and alive, or it's a pathologized thing where you either want to restrict the life force mm -hmm. or you overdose on the life force. You're, you're binging. You're eating too much, and it makes you sick. So... I think Mrs. Ganesh looking the way she does. Uh, and yeah, I think the fact that there was all the projectile vomiting, there's an oral element in there, you know? It's like a, it's like a physical manifestation of an eating disorder exactly. in some ways, you know? When, so there's a lot of those elements that yeah. become very visceral and very much kind of embodied in a way by yeah. Mrs. Ganesh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's this thing about um, she being the symptom of an eating disorder like she, she and that symptom is doing all the talking of christine's pathology her trauma the things that she wants to repress they're kind of all embodied in one person this living or you know animated person who looks like a corpse who's begging her for help you know usually that's the thing it's it, with mental illness it's usually uh, at a point of crisis where the the subject is you know maybe needing a lot of support and a lot of help. It's a point of crisis. So, um, yeah, that bank scene is, it's kind of like a, a really, really clever allegory for a lot of things. Um, that's the bit that impressed me the most. It's, it has so much tension in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it also provides like those little bits of horror that we enjoy in, in terms of entertainment. But there's a lot more value to it than just surface level, yeah. And do you think that ultimately the film is... Mrs. Ganesh, a witch, taking her revenge on someone who insulted her, mm. who uh, insulted her pride and her sense of self? Or do you think it's about punishing a young woman for being too ambitious? Mm. I think it's kind of both. Um, <laughs> the thing about, the, the thing that really struck me about Christine's response at the bank is I don't think it was ever out said outright in the script but because she was motivated to get that promotion she wanted to impress her boss and show him that she was capable of demonstrating these more tough qualities to be an assistant manager she she was just trying to do her job to me this sounds almost something out of uh like hannah arendt you know the banality of evil yeah. and the whole business that um people who wouldn't qualify themselves as evil ended up being responsible for the Second World War in this kind of complex, ne complex network of bureaucracy that ended up causing the Holocaust. Um, they were of people just doing what they were told to do instead of questioning orders. Exactly, exactly. They were just, you know, in their mind, they weren't, they didn't view or perceive themselves as being evil. They were, but they were committing and perpetuating wrongdoing and evil deeds because they were just. But they just believe they were just doing their job. And to me, this banality of evil is what ultimately, I think that Christine punishes herself. 
I think that a lot of what Mrs. Ganesh stands for is a kind of depraved representation of her, uh, maybe her superego, her conscience, that she's internalized, she's meant to be, she, she, you know, she, she probably thinks she's a decent person. She murdered her cat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so sad. And, you know, if the internet and Netflix has told us anything, oh God, is that don't you fuck do, you do not fuck with cats. <laughs> no way. You do not. Oh my God, Christina's like Luca Magnata. Oh my God, we've come full circle. With that. No, <laughs> no, no. She does. Mean. She does take um, in defense of Christine. Oh God, no. I had to look away. I know. I've seen some oh terrible, depraved horror films in my time, but I cannot see no. a cat being hurt. No way. No way. That Ever. No, that was too much. It was way too excessive and disgusting yeah. and. I lost sleep over that. I, I, I mean, I was kind of warned that that was going to be shocking, but that was mm. really brutal. And so in a way, I just think that she, she's kind of pushed. Christine, in a way, ends up... She's in pushed, yeah, in she's really pushed against all her limits, isn't she? Yeah, and she ends up committing acts that she probably never thinks she'd do. You know, and she's convinced that, you know, uh, the only thing that's going to get rid of this lamia is uh, a, a blood sacrifice, you know? Um, a blood offering or whatever and that's what makes her kill her cat so it's like mm. she's she's constantly pushing the boundaries of her morality and i think that even though it looks like it's some outside supernatural force that's punishing her i think actually it's not it's probably more an internalized guilt that this that's destroying her and just to wrap up what did you make of the spiritualist that christine consults and then mm. teams up with uh, Ram Jazz, kind of, because he's the one with the knowledge. Yeah, about the other world. That's right. That's right. And he's he's a benevolent force, so he's like the good witch in a way, um, sort of acting out uh, in favor, you know, of Christine, trying to help her. I I really liked him. I liked I liked the actor who plays him in the film, um, and I liked his character a lot. Initially, he was sort of also pitted against the boyfriend because. Do you remember when they first went to see him? Um, and he actually, uh, I think it was the boyfriend who said, uh, you know, f f he actually quoted Freud and he said, destiny is not an act of fate, rather something created by our subconscious to control our conscious choices. And then the spiritualist says, ah, yes, but, you know, not everything can be in, in understood by the intellect. And he's quoting Carl Jung. Yes. <laughs> which was They great. have a little uh, <laughs> psychoanalytical dick swing competition there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a beautiful moment. <laughs> was not expecting that, but I, I thought it was kind of good. But I like the fact that he says that because right away he's telling us everything we need to know about him, that he's not necessarily operating purely on the realm of lo logic and science and everything that we can see with our eyes and perceive it's um he kind of is an adventure of something else some some darker force some unseen unconscious realm and he he's trying to tell christine look this is what's happening and if you don't accept it you're not going to be able to get help and i i can guide you through it and he also organizes that seance mm -hmm. and i think that in a way a lot of what he's doing in the film represents an aspect of madness that is actually quite productive because he's basically saying um, what you need to do is look inward at your symptoms and not disregard them. You need to work with them, you know, um, and he even gives her this mantra about he says, I will accept uh, death into my soul. 
And I think that's really important psychoanalytically because her problem is that she's in the abject space. She's between two spaces. She's undead. Mm -hmm. And to have closure on her symptoms, she needs to reach a point where she accepts their, she kind of, goes through the course of what those symptoms are and lets those die. Uh, um, oftentimes in mental illness, our symptoms persist because we haven't let go of something. Something hasn't quite died for us. We're keeping them alive by acting out symptoms. And so in a way, he's kind of a psychoanalyst. <laughs> he's kind of saying, uh, you need to surrender to these forces and let them consume you, and then you can finally kind of uh, be free from them. And so in a way, I think he serves a really positive role. He's, he's trying to guide her through this really uncharted territory for her that scares her. He's, he's quite like a friendly force for her. He's like a good witch, like you mentioned before. A good witch. And um, it's just a tale of a little bit into, into him. And mm. he brings her to a much more established and older medium mm. um, who we actually meet in a younger version of herself in yeah. the first scene of the film which makes no sense and then it all comes back for full circle yes. um and in that seance that they organize where they're confronting the spiritual world the spirit that's been you know set to hunt down christine yeah. there's quite a few elements that seem extremely familiar uh if you've been binge watching witch films oh, yeah. and occult films like i have <laughs> so there's you know elements like the a grimoire so a book oh. of sort of forbidden knowledge and you know they're surrounded by books but the fact that they constantly refer to books of magic and spells and conjuring and there's also mm. not just the seance itself but there's the figure of the goat oh, which yeah. is very often associated which is really there to be sacrificed but it's very often associated with witches and we and with um, devil worship. Yeah. And we talked a lot about it in a previous episode of the podcast on the witch. Mm. Because uh, in Robert Eggers, the witch, yeah. he becomes the embodiment of Satan and is known as Black Philip. Mm -hmm. And in a really roundabout way, I wanted to ask, how does the film <laughs> utilize those artifacts and signifiers of, of witchcraft and occultism? Yeah, I guess um, I, I agree with your take in terms of those objects that are represented and and the things that we see in terms of um, you know symbols and that are kind of referring to previous representations, whether in literature, film, or other art forms, to refer to witchcraft. And I think at the center of that, my uh, I guess regard for rich witchcraft is that it's. Um, it's an exercise in trying to invoke powers that are outside of our realm and trying in a very conscious way to cast a spell or to manifest something that we've visualized. And it's our intent. And it's like, it's very goal-oriented. So it's like, you, it's, it's, not, it's not ambivalent in that regard. It's, it's not like a nihilistic outlook. It's very specific. And I, that really came across to me when I watched uh, the, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Like, love it. Absolutely love it. And um, what I like about all of that is that it is, it's intentional. It's all very intentional. Those objects and signifiers are there to prompt us into a mode of activity that invokes powers outside of ourselves and to bring about a result that we want. And I think already 
uh, Christine is already doing that right from the opening frame of the film. If you remember, she's in the car. She's listening to, is it like a guided uh, enunciation exercise? And she, I can't, something about round, and she's pronouncing the words. Yes. It's like she wants to get rid of her farmer accent. Yeah, and it's something like... Uh, the, owl, the, the eyes the are round. Yeah, diction. Like diction will make perfection or, so, or clear diction will make perfection. Yeah. Something very like yeah snappy but motivational like that yeah yeah exactly and also just like repeated phrases to perfect and master certain pronunciations of words Mm -hmm. and she and the whole her whole commute into her work day in the morning is her in her car very intentionally driving and like you know multitasking she's driving but she's also trying to perfect herself she's repeating this mantra you know to herself in her car she's trying to improve herself and it's kind of like an incantation you know and she's sort of like you know she's bringing herself willing herself into that mindset to try and access powers that maybe she feels she's not quite mastered yet but she's on that path you know she's she she wants she wants to be able to embody that power it's just her journey's a little bit bumpy and so when she's at her workplace, she's also told that this is what you need to do to get ahead. And, she, you know, she, she struggles within herself, but she understands that on the path to power, uh, difficult decisions have to be made. And sometimes difficult outcomes have to be confronted. And that, for me, is the essence of witchcraft. You know, it's very intentional. It's not like other horror tropes where um, characters are a little bit like at sea you know like vampires they're sort of like at the mercy to their desires they're they're kind in a way they've kind of given up the ghost whereas witches they're a little bit more in a power position because they they will themselves into mastery and into perfection beautifully put thank you that's a wonderful way to wrap up thank you so much my pleasure and tell us where can people find more of your work Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you can follow me on my Twitter at Psychstar. That's P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R. On there, I post about events that I run. I run a lecture series called Projections, which is applying psychoanalysis to film interpretation. Usually it's at venues like the Freud Museum, City Lit, and Picture House Cinemas. And I also co-host a podcast with my friend Sarah Cleaver. And you can find us everywhere, basically, on all podcast apps. We're Projections Podcast. Repeat the following phrases precisely as spoken. There is no friction with the proper diction. There is no and that's it for another episode of the Final diction. Ghost Podcast. Good Please do rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghost.uk. You can also follow Mary on Twitter at Sykester, and I am on Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more witchy goodness next week. <laughs>